All right, let's open our Bibles, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, Once again, we return to our study in Revelation, and we're in a most glorious part of the book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the story of redemption, and the entire book is presented to us as the unfolding of God's plan to bring to an end uh, this sin-cursed world, to restore it to the condition that it was in the creation, and to the full splendor that God intended. It's God's intent that Jesus should receive all glory, that he would be exalted by all creatures in heaven and earth. And it's his intention that anything that interferes with this complete holiness will be done away with. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The Scripture says the devil sinned from the beginning. And that means that rebellion against God started in heaven and then spread to the earth through the influence of Satan. And so the entire creation has been affected by sin so that God is not glorified upon the earth as he should be. And so this universe is not perfectly holy. God's not always glorified. And so all the devils and uh, all of his angels and all men that live in sin must be destroyed in order for Christ to come into the fullness of his glory. And we've been studying for two years how that takes place. The world is moving towards this event, and as time goes by, we keep getting closer and closer to it. As Paul wrote in Romans, he said, Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And every day that goes by, we are getting nearer and nearer to the time that Christ will come and end this sin-cursed world forever. So we're now in a part of the narrative of Revelation where Christ is ready to come to the earth and to establish his righteous kingdom. And verse number 11 of this chapter will put us there. But before this, there is a scene of great anticipation in heaven as the appearance of Christ is about ready to be made. And so we know that the millennial kingdom is coming, but there is an event that precedes this that accentuates the magnificence of Christ. And this is when the king receives his bride. And we're talking here about the marriage of the Lamb of God to his people. And this is such a blessed event that it's going to take 1,000 years to celebrate it. Now, I think it's important enough that we at least spend a little bit of time on it. It's a part of Scripture that's not well understood. And so we're taking a little bit of time to go through this and to examine this study about the bride of Christ more carefully. Now, our text verses this evening are verses 7 through 10 in Revelation 19, but as we've done before, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 4. Revelation 19, verse number 4. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now we've already had two messages on this subject of the bride and the bridegroom. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time going back over that other material. But there are some just very important aspects of this doctrine that I do think that we need to look at. And it's going to take us a little bit of time to get through this. Uh, Since there are at least 6,000 years of human history up to the present time, uh, this was a marriage that was planned. It's been brewing, so to speak, for all of this time. And uh, as you would imagine, there's a lot that goes on in the planning stages. Redemption is the theme of the Bible, and the development of that is actually a long process of time, a long process to go through, and it, it started even before the world began. And so that's where we started this study of the marriage of the Lamb. It goes back to the foundation of the world. And so we talked about, first, the contract for marriage. Uh, marriage is in the Bible times... Uh, would be a contract between two parents that uh, decided there would be a marriage between their children. And that marriage was arranged. There was a dowry that was paid. And then when the proper time came, then the marriage uh, would be consummated. But the selection of the bride, that was made beforehand. And when the contract was made, that was considered to be irrevocable. And so the, the two people, that two children that were going to be married were considered to be married right then, even before the marriage was consummated. And that's one of, the, one of the wonderful aspects of Christ's marriage is that the Father selected the bride before the foundation of the world. And, of course, that is that wonderful Bible doctrine that we know called election. Hebrews calls it an everlasting covenant. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, it says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is an everlasting covenant that's made between the Father and the Son in which the Father would give the bride to the Son and the Son agreed to pay for her through the blood of his sacrifice. So that's why this is called the blood of the everlasting covenant. So we looked at that aspect in the marriage and we also discussed uh, the choice in the marriage. And it was a choice that was made before the world began. And this was a choice that was based solely and wholly in the Father's will. It was his decision. It was not based upon anything that was foreseen in the bride. The bride has not disposed herself to be chosen. And that's actually a ludicrous assumption when you look into the Bible and and see these things unfolding. But the choice of the bride is something that was unconditional. And so it wasn't based upon anything she did, nothing foreseen in any of her activities, especially this, that she would choose the groom if she was given the chance. Because if that was the criteria for selection, then there wouldn't be a bride because the Scriptures tell us that we are defiled, we are depraved, we are corrupt, we hate God, we don't seek Him, we're dead in trespasses and sin. And so, in short, the Bible is telling us that we have no ability in ourselves to choose God. And so, the language of Scripture everywhere prevents this, 
All glory belongs to God. And that's why God has chosen it to be this way so that no person could ever say, I'm a Christian because I've made such good decisions and I'm so wise in the choices that I have made. We don't choose Christ. He chooses us. Now, thirdly, we looked at the church and the marriage. And it is true that every person that is saved or ever will be saved is saved because of the choice of the Father. But the selection of the bride itself is actually narrower than all the people that have been chosen, narrower narrower than all the redeemed. The bride is specifically chosen out of those that have been called by God. The bride is the church. And so those that are saved in other ages where you don't have the church, they're going to be in heaven. They're saved as much as we are in this time period. But the bride actually holds a special place of prominence. And there are several ways that we can draw that out of Scripture. Uh, The most obvious would be the very clear statements that Paul makes in the book of Ephesians where he refers to the church as uh, the ones that Christ gave his life for and that comes in the context of teachings on uh, how a wife is to submit herself to her husband. It's speaking about marriage and about that duty. Then we also know that the church is distinct from Israel. Now, Israel will be saved, the Word of God says, but Israel is not a part of the bride. In the Old Testament, Israel is spoken of as the divorced wife of God. Uh, God divorced her because of fornication. Israel went into idolatry. She forsook her husband. God does intend to restore Israel, but she can't be the bride because she's not the chaste virgin that's always remained faithful. And then we also see a difference in the tribulation saints. Here in this 19th chapter, we find those that are martyred in the tribulation time. uh, They're praising God because of the marriage, but they don't include themselves in the numbers that are in the bride. There will be a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And so that's the time period where the bride is making ready for the marriage ceremony. So that's just a brief look at what we've discussed so far. And this evening, I want to expand on this last statement concerning those that are saved, but they are people that are not in the bride. So fourthly, we have the call to the marriage. In my tenure as pastor of the church, I've been called on to perform wedding ceremonies. And two of the most unusual wedding ceremonies that I've performed happened in my office, where it was the bride and the groom, it was me, and there was nobody else. Uh, there are various reasons why that was done, and I'm not going to go into it now. But that kind of a marriage is very unusual. And that's because marriage is usually considered one of the highlights of a person's life, if not the most important thing. As I said last week, uh, aside from a person's salvation, you probably don't consider anything greater than a person's marriage. And so in every culture that I know about, a marriage is celebrated, it's a big deal, and the bride and the groom, they want to invite as many people as possible to come and to attend the wedding, to witness it, and to celebrate it. So I don't often perform wedding ceremonies in my office. What we do is we bring them out here into the auditorium, or they are done outside in an outdoor setting, and that's so there are plenty of people that can be invited. Family can come, friends can come, can come, so you have many guests that are invited to a wedding. And in all my years of performing marriages and, and also attending marriages, I've never seen a time when a bride received an invitation to her own wedding. 
The bride doesn't receive an invitation. She's the one that sends them out, or the way we do it today, maybe the bride and the bridegroom send out wedding invitations. So you're not going to find a bride receiving an invitation to her own wedding. So we notice here in verse number 9 of our text, it says, He saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So there are some that are called to the marriage of the Lamb. That they couldn't be the bride, as we've just said. She doesn't receive an invitation. So there are some that are going to be there at this wedding ceremony, but they're not in the bride. In a wedding, there are guests that come. There are attendants to the wedding. There are some that are in the wedding party, but you don't refer to them as the bride. And so it is here in the wedding of Christ that uh, of Christ to his bride, there are many called to be witnesses. Now, obviously, the ones that are called are not sinners. These aren't people, I mean, sinners that are condemned to hell. I mean, God's not sending out invitations to wicked men that have been condemned to hell to come to the the wedding feast. Uh, He's not inviting those people that lived in Babylon. They're not invited to come to this. So the invitees have to be people that have likewise been redeemed, but they're not a part of the bride. And so we know from that that the bride is distinct. So all the redeemed are going to be in heaven, but all of the redeemed are not a part of the bride. So who are these people that aren't part of the bride? Well, they're all saved people, and they've come from many different eras. Uh, They were never a part of the faithful church. They're not any less saved than, than we are, but they're not as privileged. They're not as privileged as those that are a part of the bride, because I do believe that this privilege, living in this age, being a part of the Lord's church, is the greatest privilege that you could have. Anyone could, no one could have a greater privilege than to be in the bride of Christ. Now, I've already said that the bride did not first choose the groom, and she never would. She is chosen. And so she can never gloat it over the other invitees and say, well, look who I am, and look who you're not. It's very clear that God does have an order of things, and this is why we're talking about the bride separately. But we ought not to think that what we're looking at here is a hierarchy in heaven, that there are many people that are going to be in heaven, but some of them are going to have to live in heaven's ghettos. They'll be there, but they're not in the best places. They're in the ghettos of heaven. Well, there isn't any such place, and we ought not to try to make any kind of distinction like this. We are privileged... But the focus is not on us. The focus is not on the bride. The focus is and always will be on the bridegroom. And so what God has done, he has designed a variety of ways that God receives glory. So the bride is going to give Christ glory, but also those that are invited to the wedding, they give God glory, but they do it in a different way. Uh, John Wolvord makes a, makes a good comment on this subject. He says, The unfounded notion that God treats all saints of all ages exactly alike is hard to displace in the theology of the church. The fact that the divine purpose is not the same for Israel, the Gentile believers, or the church of the present age is plainly written in the Word of God. Such distinctions, however, should not be made greater than they really are. God does not deal with Israel on the same plane as he does Gentiles, nor does he deal with the church on the same plane as he does the Gentile saints or Israel. Each has its peculiar advantages and particular place in the divine program. Just as no two individuals have exactly the same destiny, 
So no two nations or groups in God's program are treated exactly alike. In all these relationships, God is completely sovereign, righteous, and wise. So there are different groups of people, and all of them are in the bride, but they're in heaven. Now, I want to show you then the difference between those that are invited and they receive the invitation to the wedding ceremony and those that are invited and reject the invitation. Now, in the first category, the ones that are invited and receive the invitation, these are called the friends of the bridegroom. Now, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And uh, some of you may be a little bit ahead of me now because you recognize who we're going to talk about when we speak of the friends of the bridegroom. Because there is one person in Scripture that specifically has that designation. And we find it here in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse number 22. And here we find information about that great prophet, John the Baptist. John chapter 3, verse number 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized John also was baptizing in Enon near to Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. I'll stop right there. You need to underline that verse. That is an important verse in the Scripture. There is one uh, that is a verse about the sovereignty of God and his selection, about about the doctrines of grace. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now there we see John the Baptist's answer to those who seemed to be a little bit upset that the ministry of Jesus was beginning to outshine that of John. And so some of John's disciples were arguing with Jesus' disciples about purification. And uh, by that, I think that he, that we're talking here about the issue of baptism. John was baptizing, and he was recognized to be a great prophet of God, so much so that the people thought he could possibly be the Messiah. But Jesus' disciples were also baptizing, and they began to draw greater crowds than John did. And so there seems to be some jealousy developing here because John's disciples did not yet fully understand who that Jesus was. But John says something interesting about Jesus. He calls him the bridegroom. And the bridegroom, of course, is the one who's going to marry the bride. But John sets himself apart from the bride, and he says that there are friends of the bridegroom. And they rejoice because they are his friends. So at this point, John is telling them that his ministry should be eclipsed by Jesus. John was never interested in calling attention to him. He wanted to call attention to the true Messiah. So he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, John was a great man. He was a great prophet. But John was never a part of the Lord's church. 
Later, Jesus said that there is not a person that was born among women, born from women, that was greater than John the Baptist. And there's a lot of debate over that statement, what that means, but I think that we could surely attach to it this, that those who are a part of the kingdom in the age in which we live now, in this dispensation of the church, are in a different position of privilege than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is a friend of the bridegroom. And then notice something else that Jesus says about John. He said this in Matthew 11, verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now, people are confused about this as well. We see John in the New Testament, but John is actually the last Old Testament prophet. He's the dividing line between the Old Testament and the New, and he represents all of the prophets of God in that respect. All of them are friends of the bridegroom. And so like John, they are a part of the kingdom, but they weren't a part of the time period in which we have the church. So those are friends of the bridegroom. And everybody that was saved prior to the time that Christ came and established the church, those are designated as invitees to the wedding. They're guests at the wedding, but they're not a part of the bride. And then I believe that there are also... Uh, friends that are guests and they are invitees, other ones that are not a part of the bride. And these are those who are in the dispensation of the church, but they haven't become a part of the church. And I know that that is a huge disagreement. Many people are going to disagree with me about this. But here I stand with most of our, or many of, our fundamental Baptist friends on the doctrine of the local church. We are not universal church. We, we don't believe in a universal church, an invisible church. And those people who do take the position that all who are saved in this time period of the church until Jesus comes again, that every single person is a part of the bride, regardless of whether they're in the visible church or not. And so they do make this distinction that there is both a visible and an invisible church. And because people are in the invisible church, they say, they must be a part of the bride. But we don't take that position. And the reason is because in the New Testament, the word church is translated 118 times, and 115 times it refers to a local assembly. And there's not one time in the New Testament where it ever refers to an invisible body. So that means that there must be people that are, are outside of the church. They're saved, but they are not part of the visible church. And since church membership is not a prerequisite for salvation, it would be possible for a person to be a Christian and not be in the visible church. And that's the position that's held by our fundamental brothers, and we agree with that local church doctrine, and we stand right with them when they're right about this. So this also means that since the church is the bride, that those that are outside of the church are not in the bride. They're invitees. They will be at the wedding feast. They're guests but they're not a part of the bride. And then there's still this third group of invitees, and we've already alluded to them. These are born again, they're blood-washed, but they're not in the bride. And these are the tribulation saints. These are people saved during the tribulation time, but they were saved after the church was raptured, and so they're not a part of the bride. And in our text verses that we're reading here, they're a part of this great multitude of verse number 7 that says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So these people are blessed, according to verse number 9, because they have been called to the supper. 
And then I might also note this, that many times uh, you're invited to wedding celebrations and there are tables that have been set aside for the special guest. Uh, The bride may seat her family close to her. Uh, The attendants will have their special table. And so there are many guests that are called to the banquet. And John the Baptist, who is the specially designated friend of the bridegroom, I think is going to have his appointed place. He's the one that's the greatest of that particular uh, dispensation. So he has his place. Then comes Abraham and people like Moses and Elijah, Elisha, David, Daniel, all of those. They're all friends of the bridegroom, and they have their seats at a table. They're friends, but they're not a part of the bride. Now, I want to finish this next part then with those that are rejected. Uh, We're going to talk more about the bride next week because then we need to get into the character of the bride. But there is a large group of people that are rejected. Uh, The friends of the bridegrooms are one uh, bridegroom are the ones that have received the invitation and they accept the invitation, but there are others that reject the invitation. And these are the foes of the bridegroom. Jesus illustrated the foes of the bridegroom in a parable that's found in Matthew chapter 22. So let's turn there if you would, and we'll finish out our lesson tonight in the 22nd chapter of Matthew. And I want to caution you to something here, though, about parables. Uh, We're not to build doctrines out of parables because the parables are not intended for that. Not all analogies are perfect analogies, and so a parable may be intended to bring out a particular point, but a parable doesn't answer all questions. And one of the terrible inconsistencies that you find with those who believe amillenary doctrine and postmillenary doctrine is the dependence that they have upon parables. And so you'll see them going to parables to try to substantiate their teachings when there are other places in the Scripture that are far clearer on the subject than the parables would be. And, and to clarify for you just a little bit, if you're wondering about what an amillenary is, that's a person who believes that we are right now in the kingdom and that there's not going to be a literal uh, kingdom upon this earth where Christ rules for a thousand years. And then the post-millenaries are people who believe that the world is going to keep getting better and better and better until finally the gospel permeates the entire world and then Christ's kingdom slowly comes in and then... Christ is going to come and he's going to end all of that. And so there's not going to be any particular reign upon the Christ that would, uh, reign of Christ upon the earth that emphasizes Israel or where Jesus will sit on the throne of David. Now, as we look at this parable, there is no teaching in this parable concerning the bride of Christ. But what we do find here is teaching about the wedding feast and about invitees and some that hear and receive the invitation, and some that hear it and reject it. So you look at Matthew 22, verse number 1. It says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come into the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. 
But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how comest thou hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen." Now, you really shouldn't have any trouble equating here who the king is and who the son is. The king, of course, represents God the Father, and the son is Christ. So the emphasis here is on a wedding feast and not really on the bride. And so in verse number 3, you have servants that are sent to invite people to the feast. And these servants are the prophets of the Old Testament. They went to Israel. Uh, this would be Abraham. This is Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and the others. And they went to Israel. They spoke God's word to Israel. And yet Israel refused to listen and they rejected God's invitation. And then in verse number 4, we find other servants that are sent. And these represent the apostles. They brought the gospel to the Jews during the time of the church, but the Jews refused it. The gospel was rejected, and they took the apostles and they martyred them because of the message. And so then what did the king do? He sent his armies to destroy them. And this is what God did when he used Rome uh, to come and uh, chastise Israel for rejecting and crucifying Christ. And so in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus came into Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. But then in verse number 10, we have another command. And here they're told to go into the highways and to call many more unto the feast so that the wedding can be furnished with guests. So that refers to the Gentiles. God turned away from Israel because they rejected the message. And so now he sends the message to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are called through the gospel of Christ. They are called into the church and to become a part of God's kingdom. Now, if you look at verse number 11, uh, I said we don't have perfect analogies here. So we can't line it up word for word like, we, like uh, what we're reading in Revelation. But there is one person at this feast who's not dressed properly. He doesn't have the clothes that are required for the wedding. And that represents the person who is not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so he's not a believer. He, he's not received salvation by putting all of his confidence in Christ as Savior. And Christ is the one who gives us the necessary righteousness that we need in, in order to come into this wedding. And so he's heard the gospel. He's rejected it. And the scripture says that now he's going to be taken and cast into the fires of hell. So these are the foes of the bridegroom. They're not going to enjoy the sumptuous banquet of the king. They're not going to enjoy the festivities of the kingdom. They're rejected and they're thrown out. Now Jesus ends with an interesting statement. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, there are lots of people that would like to avoid that last part of the text, and they wish that this wasn't included. And what it's teaching here is that the gospel spreads 
a broad blanket when it's preached. When we give the gospel of Christ to people, and I stand here and preach in the pulpit, I may be preaching to a lot of people that don't know Christ as Savior, a lot of people that will never believe. Yet the gospel goes out to them, and they are invited, but they don't receive it. And the Jesus says that the reason that they don't receive the invitation, many are called, many hear the gospel message, but only a few are chosen. Now, what that means then is that what God does with the gospel of Christ is that he is the one who makes it effectual in the heart of the sinner. It's not good enough just to give people the gospel. We're commanded to do that, but that's all that we can do. All that we can do is preach the gospel to people, and so we preach it to everybody, just like the Scriptures have commanded. But the only way that a person is ever going to come to Christ and realize what that gospel means is for God to work effectually in his heart. And the ones that receive the gospel of Christ are the ones that are chosen. And so we find this working throughout Scripture. This is the constant teaching of Scripture over and over that the ones who come to Christ are the ones that God has worked effectually in their hearts so that they do respond to the gospel and they do believe because faith has to be given by God. So all of these people then, everyone who has believed regardless of what age that they're in, whether it's in the Old Testament and whether we're talking about Israel or talking about the few Gentiles of the Old Testament period that were saved, All of those people are going to be in heaven, but those people are not in the bride. There are many people that are, uh, that were saved or in the church age and never became a part of the visible church. They're not going to be a part of the bride. Tribulation people that are saved after the rapture of the church, they won't be in the bride. They're all in heaven. They are all redeemed. They all have their special place, but they're not a part of the bride. And here is the blessed privilege of everybody sitting in this room tonight that if you are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have received him as Savior, if you have become a part of his church, and by definition we think the word church means that it is a visible church. So if you are a part of his visible church and you're faithful to him, then we believe those are the ones that are chosen to be the bride of Christ. Now, I'm going to end with that tonight. There's a lot that we can talk about on the subject, and we're going to. Uh, There are just amazing aspects to this. And I think when you delve into the Scriptures deeply enough, you're going to find the eternal purposes of God written everywhere. It's taught throughout Scripture. So redemption, that is God's plan for the world. It's very carefully devised. It's very finely crafted. And it proceeds step by step by step until Christ finally rules heaven and earth in perfect righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to bring your word tonight. And what a blessed teaching that we have here, and what a wonderful privilege that we have, that we were born in an age when we can become a part of your church, and thereby in being faithful to you and being called and chosen, that we can become a part of your precious bride. We thank you that for, Lord, for that, Lord. I pray that you would bless our people tonight, and I pray if there's anyone here who hasn't received you as Savior, that tonight that would be the night that they would recognize this, that they need to know you, they need to come, they need to be, a, uh, to be saved and become a part of your church. Lord, we just ask you bless your word tonight and draw uh, Christians closer to you by having received 
the teaching instruction from the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.